our guest today introduced me to a job title I had never heard before, the maltster. She works for one of the very few distilleries that still floor malts its barley. Thus, the need for a maltster. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. In short, a maltster is a maker of malt for use in brewing or distilling. But Charlotte Coyle goes into way more detail about the maltster at Ben Riek Distillery. Charlotte is the Brown Foreman UK Malt Whiskey Ambassador, and she sat down to tell me all about the history and the whiskey that is made up in the Speyside Distillery of Ben Riek. Plus, what goes on in Warehouse 13. But before we explore maltsters... You can now watch this episode, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more on YouTube. So check out the Lush Life YouTube channel. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, on to Charlotte. It's really, really great to have you on the show. I'm so excited to talk whiskey. It's one of my favorite spirits, and I love Scotland. So I can't wait to hear all about Benriac and how you got into the business, Charlotte. So why don't you introduce yourself? And I'm sure I will interject with a thousand questions. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I'm so excited. It feels like we've been really planning this, haven't we, for such a while. But it's so good that we finally got together. So yeah, so I'm Charlotte Quill. I'm actually based up in Newcastle, but I'm from just outside of Liverpool originally, which is where this interesting accent comes from. Um, Kind of got into whiskey from bartending all my way through university. And then I decided to kind of stop doing psychology, which is what I studied, and kind of move over to spirits full time. So I bartended, I mean, maybe for seven or eight years. And then I actually joined the Brown Foreman team as a Woodford Reserve brand ambassador, which is one of our bourbons, which is extremely delicious as well. And I've been working on the single malts now for, it's coming up to two years, I think. I think it's two years in March. So it's been, it's been really fun. It's been a journey of learning, definitely learning new categories and learning different kind of competitor spirits and what my own palate is like, but it's really fun. It's a really good job. We've had Tom Vernon on the show, so I know Woodford Reserve very well. But what was it, do you think, about being behind the bar, being in a bar that made you want to say, you know, forget about psychology. I really want to pursue this, the drinks industry. Ironically, because psychology is all about people. It was people uh, who course. kept me in bartending, really. I'm quite, I suppose I'm quite a maternal and kind of caring person. So I really like the idea of hospitality generally and looking after people. But I'm also really, really interested in kind of the history of spirits and the science behind it. And I think what's so, I mean, what's beautiful about our industry really is that you get to meet so many different people from all walks of life and everyone got into things in different ways and everyone has kind of their own path. And I just think that's really, really an amazing thing. But kind of the second part of that is that, I mean, I've always been a whiskey drinker. Since I was like 18 years old, I was always into whiskey. My order at the bar was always a Jack and Coke. 
So kind of refining that a little bit and going towards single malt and, you know, drinking neat spirits, it felt like a bit of a natural progression for me. And I love working in advocacy, being able to kind of share knowledge with people who are maybe just starting on that journey or sometimes have been on that journey much longer than I have. It's just a really nice kind of reciprocal relationship, I suppose. Was it hard to give up being behind the bar to kind of be in an office or work for, you know, a company? It was strange because, I mean, I came into it, I suppose, maybe about eight months before everyone was working from home anyway. Um, Dreaded seaweed. So it was interesting because I had to develop a different sort of discipline. I was used to, you know, being on my seat all day and arriving at at a certain time and staying there for kind of eight, nine hours and then going home in the early hours, making sure everything was clean. And you really develop this different discipline of, well, no one is going to call me if I am not at my desk at home. (laughs) So it's interesting to kind of develop that discipline of turning up and putting in your best self and bringing your best self to work, even if you're just at home speaking to people virtually. And it's great because my team is amazing. We all work really well together. And I suppose being academic anyway, I was quite an academic person anyway. I think that definitely helped me a little bit in that respect. Of course, of course. So let's delve into whiskey. <laughs> so when did you start working with uh, Ben Rick? So I've looked after three single malts within Brown Foreman. So I look after um, Ben Rick, the Glendronic and Glen Glasson. Ben Rick is probably kind of our more approachable spirit, I would say. It's definitely the one that I give people to kind of get them into kind of a single malt's discovery, I suppose. But I've worked on this now for just under two years, which is really, really great. It's been, Mm -hmm. it feels like it's flown by. (laughs) I'm sure. And starting, of course, during COVID. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the brand itself? You know, how it started and how that whiskey got into that bottle. Sure. So actually, it was founded in 1898. So in terms of Scottish whiskey, it's relatively late, I suppose, and it's in the kind of whiskey journey of Scotland. But it was started by a man called John Duff. And something that I really love about him is that he actually worked on the stills at Glendronach. Glendronach opened in like the early 1800s. So he was already a stillman for quite a long time. And he had a couple of distilleries in the area. Glen Lossie is one that he also had, Long Morn. Uh, which is now owned by Perno Ricard, and he opened Benria as his third uh, distillery. Now, some a story that I often tell about Benria is that it closed down kind of, I mean, 18 months later. So it was oh, opened no. in 1898 and it closed in 1900. And it was a victim of the Patterson crash. If any of your listeners aren't aware of what the Patterson crash is, it was basically two brothers who kind of created almost like a credit crunch within the Scotch whiskey industry. They would borrow money from banks and then use it to buy stock and casks from different brands and then kind of say that they would pay them back at another time and just got themselves into this spiral, really. But they put a lot of lot of companies out of business. I, I suppose one of my favorite stories about them, though, I, I often refer to them as kind of the original marketeers of Scotch whiskey. <laughs> Because there's this story that I read about where they bought 400 African grey parrots 
and taught the parrots to say buy Patterson's whiskey and then gave them to people that they wanted to invest in their business. No way. Yeah. And you can kind of see from that why they weren't that successful. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. Out- anyone out there who's a marketer, do not try this. Don't try no, it though. No. <laughs> but yeah, so Benry it closed again in 1900. It didn't reopen until the 60s. And then it's been owned by lots and lots of different people. Perna Ricard, Shivers Brothers owned it at one point. And then Brown Foreman bought it in 2015. It was owned by someone called Billy Walker before that, who is kind of an icon, really, in Scotch whiskey. He now runs Glenallachie, which is a really, really delicious brand as well. And then Rachel Barry came into the fold a couple of years after Brown Foreman bought it. And it's kind of been going strength to strength since we rebranded two years ago, two and a bit years ago. So you see sometimes, which I think is quite nice, actually, you'll go into a whiskey shop and you can see the old branding next to the new branding. And all of the kind of core SKUs that we have, so all of the core bottlings, we have an original 10, which is our 10-year-old. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we get into all that, we have to go back for a sec. (laughs) So it closed down in 1900. (laughs) Did all of his distilleries have to close or just Ben Riek? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it was just Ben Riek. But I think what is quite interesting is I think that they just leave all the stock there. We're coming to that too. So it closed down. Mm -hmm. Did it just mean that the buildings closed and weren't used for anything during that time? No, so that's perfect lead on actually. So um oh. uh, what's good really amazing about when they did close down and something that as kind of I'm a history I'm very passionate about history anyway. Me so, too. <laughs> something that is really beautiful about Benriac is when they closed in nineteen hundred, the distillery wasn't mothballed, it didn't become kind of a ghost distillery because they basically used it for floor maltings. So if your listeners aren't aware of what floor maltings are, it's essentially a really traditional way to create malted barley. So what you would do, I mean, what most people do nowadays is they'll buy their barley in already malted from what we call a maltster, which is a great mm-hmm. title, I think. And they will have it to their specifications and have it perfect for their whiskey. Whereas there is eight distilleries in Scotland that still do floor malting, which is a super traditional method whereby you would buy the barley in, you basically sprinkle it all over the floor. I mean, I say sprinkle, but you would be doing like 14 tons at a time. (laughs) And you sprinkle it all over the floor. You coat it in a very, very fine layer of water. And essentially what you're doing in that process is tricking the barley into sprouting because it thinks time to grow because it's raining. And when it starts to grow, it gets to a point that we would call green malt. So green malt is when it's ready. And it's not just the fact that it grows. It's the fact that all of the enzymes that that barley needs to ferment and to to create whiskey, to create flavor, all of those enzymes are actually growing within the malt. So then once it's ready, we will essentially put it into a kiln, dry it out, that is where you'll find people use peat to make peated. Right, of course. People use the peat as kind of the heat source. But one of my favorite things about the floor malting is not just the fact that we keep it alive as a kind of traditional method. We do it during a period of time that we call malting season. So malting season lasts about six to eight weeks. 
we do it usually during April to May. So what's really great is that it usually subsides with Spirit of Speyside, the festival. So if anyone is going up to Spirit of Speyside, get in to see those molting floors in action. And you have to have, it's a lot of manpower because you have to have someone constantly turning it. Essentially what would happen if you were to just leave it to grow is it would all mat together and it would grow at different times because it's been exposed to the water. So you have to have someone who constantly turns the malt so that you don't basically get a, a rug of malt on the floor. And that interestingly is where the term monkey shoulder comes from. So right, it's, of course. you would de- overdevelop one muscle in your shoulder from turning it. And I just, I think it's such a brilliant thing that they've kept alive. And I feel quite privileged actually to be able to talk about it from one of our own distilleries. It is truly amazing, I think. And, and so they were doing this throughout up until the 60s when they brought back the whiskey. Exactly. Yeah. And then so very recently, uh, so that would have basically sustained them in order to open the distilleries back up or open the distillery back up. Now, I was speaking to our global brand ambassador not long ago, and he's great because he actually, so then did close again uh, in kind of the late 90s and reopened early 2000s. And he was part of the team that A, opened the distillery again, but B, kind of said, we should bring malting floors back. And they actually hired back a lot of the a lot of the maltsters or the people who had helped them do the malting floors. They hired them back to say, can you show us what to do? <laughs> I love that. I love that. And now that's something that we continue to do every year. So it is a special release that we do once a year. So kind of coinciding with when the malting floors are on, there will not long after that be a release. And the, I think for the last two years, they've been maybe the first one, first edition was nine years old and the second edition is 10. If I've I think I've got that correctly. But it's really worth looking out for because they'll use different styles of barley and every edition of that is going to taste slightly different because it's a different well, It's really particular for that beer or, and the malt that's on the floor. And it's almost like, I mean, you, there would be maybe a bigger conversation to have around terroir in single malt. Like it's a really interesting way to explore it. Of course. Now, the other thing that I was going to ask was <laughs> when it closed down, are there any whiskeys from the 1898 to 1900s when it closed? Was anything ever found in a barrel? I don't think so. I, or okay. I would assume that we don't have hold of it now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just wondering. <laughs> it would be very, very old, but it would be amazing. If just, I mean, they have a lot of historical whiskey at the distillery. They have what they call kind of the archives of the distillery, but in one of our warehouses, I think the oldest whiskey they have in there at the moment is 1966. Ah. So they've got some that has really gone back that they've been able to preserve. And from what I've heard, it kind of has matured really, really nicely. I don't know what they'll do with it, but it's interesting to go and look up. Yeah, absolutely. When they reopened, what (laughs) was the thinking that they were going to create many different years or were they literally starting again from, you know, and 1966 was the first one, you know, putting it in a barrel? So I'm I'm not sure, to be honest, because it would have been a completely different company then. Seagram's owned it at one point, which I always associate as kind of an American company. There was lots of different people who had hold of it. So I wish we could kind of look at their thinking and see what they were going to do. 
So I think, well, for me, the earliest that I would properly know is kind of early okay. 2000s. But they released, where we have kind of bottlings from the 80s where they used to release it along other Seagram's bottlings. So Seagram's owned a couple of different distilleries and they used to be released in, it was called like Malt okay. of Scotland, something similar to that, where they would just have like loads of different, and that was what, Benrick was always the kind of side version because the spirit from there is just so side esque it's just like a perfect, all the characteristics are apples and pears and honey. And it's a really good representation of Speyside, I think. Yes, it must be delicious. So, all right. Now in the 2000s, uh-huh. um, what was the first iteration from there and how did it grow and, and, you know, to what you have now? So when it was opened again by Billy Walker, so under Benriac Distilling Company was the company name at that time. And he is the one who the Glendronach and Glenglasser and had the three distilleries together under kind of one company. And something that I really love about what they used to do under Benriac Distilling Company is they're kind of one of the first distilleries who used to release a lot of cask finishes. So when you look at bottlings from under Benriac Distilling Company, there is a huge amount of different cask finishes. So they did like Madeira cask finishes dark rum cask finishes and it was quite quite rare there was lots of distillery doing that maybe as special releases but no one doing that in their core range yeah so billy walk was kind of one of these as well as, as a couple of other distilleries one of these pioneers behind actually releasing something really consistently that was an exploration of cask finishing really you think of that as such a modern thing you know and that's that's still 20 years ago thinking of that that's super innovative, super early. It really is. And I think when you, like, considering that, I mean, Scotch whiskey laws are extremely strict. And I mean, I know a couple of years ago, they were allowed to do a couple of different cast finishes, whereas at that time they were sort of limited. Uh-huh. But lots of people are going to be using, at that time, like a huge amount of whiskey is going to be an expert in casts. Right. Expo and casks are always going to give you kind of this delicious, I suppose, bringing off point, but just adding those different finishes and bringing those kind of into Scotch whiskey, I think is a really impressive thing to do because Benriac itself, I think, is super versatile. And we can talk about the core bottlings that we have at the moment and how versatile they are. But I think as a spirit itself, as the distillate, it really takes well to lots and lots of different casks. Uh-huh. So to be able to see it with kind of this fingerprint of Benria and this addition of ex-bourbon for kind of the majority of its life, but then see all of these amazing finishes like Marsala wine cask finishes and sherry cask finishes, I think is just incredible. And it really shows what the distillery can do as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. So I, well, why don't we start with what's behind me, the original, as it's called, the original 10. Why is that the original? That's a really good question. So as we're talking about the 90s, this kind of comes back towards this. So 94 was the first ever single malt release from Benria. So a single malt, if people are new to whiskey listening, a single malt is basically a whiskey that is made from malted barley and from a single distillery. So Mm -hmm. if you were talking about blends or if you were talking about a blended malt or a blended grain, 
that whiskey is taken from lots of different distilleries and then blended together. So we now deal exclusively in single right. malts. So everything that is released from Benriac now is all created and from start to finish under Benriac's roof. Right. Right. But the original 10 that was released in 1994 was our first ever single malt. So it had, what I really love about what Rachel has done with this original 10 that we have now is something that is kind of quite unique about this is that it has a real tiny trace of peat whiskey in it. So she will blend it in just very, very slightly. And some people can really pick it up. Some people really can't. It really depends on what your palate is used to. But that's something that she's brought through into this new iteration, which I think is just such a lovely way to honor the past, I suppose, and honor what has come before her. So yeah, so it's such a great expression. And I think it's really the DNA of Benriac in a bottle. It is absolutely delicious. I did a tasting and yes, I felt that it was like, it was kind of a wink to Scotland. The little bit of pee, yeah. you know, hey, we're in Scotland now, <laughs> you know, this is single malt. Exactly. Uh -huh. And it, I think it's really great because as I kind of said at the beginning, it's, Benriac is super approachable and you'll know from tasting it, the original 10 is really light in its flavor. It's got apples, pears, honey. There's a slight nuttiness, I think, in it, but there's also all of these kind of lemon zests and grapefruits. I think it's such a lovely way to get people into whiskey. And so each of our core range as well, we have three casks in each one and they will change as we go through bottlings. So the original 10 has kept those same casks for a couple of its iterations now. So we use an ex-bourbon cask as we were just talking about ex-bourbon right. casks. We know that that's a really good base to balance whiskey on. It's lots of caramels, toffees kind of all of those quintessential bourbon flavors are still going to be in that cask. Mm -hmm. We have an ex-sherry cask in there. So sherry for me is going to bring a little bit of that nuttiness through. It dries out what could potentially be quite a sweet cask with right. the bourbon. And then we add a virgin cask in there as well. Okay. So a virgin cask will be American oak, but it will come straight from our cooperage. It won't have been used before. And that brings us through a little bit of kind of baking spice, cinnamon, nutmeg sometimes comes through for me and it's just so perfectly blended and I love that they've kept it at 43% as well so it's got a really nice ABV not too high not too low it's just a really lovely jumping off point yeah it's it's a really easy one now in the process I know I read about that you have a four water mash yeah and can you tell us what that means what are the four waters and you know how does how does that work Absolutely. So once we've got our malted barley, we need to basically find a way to get all of the sugar out of it. So sugar is going to be really, really important because that when we get to a fermentation process, that is going to feed all of the starch and the starch will create alcohol. And that is basically how that process of creating alcohol will begin over kind of 60 hours. If we rewind slightly before we get to that point, we need to release the sugar. So what they'll right. do is they will actually steep the malted barley, almost like a tea is, I think, the easiest way to think about it. But they will do it with four different, what we would call four different waters. So if you imagine it's kind of all in a vat, they will pour in 
a first water, which is kind of the coolest one that the whiskey, that the malted barley will see. And that will start to release all of the sugars very slightly. They will then drain that, keep that water. They will add a second water, which is slightly higher in temperature. They will leave it to steep. They will keep that, drain that water and keep it. They add a third water, which is, as you can imagine, slightly higher in temperature. Right. And that will then start to release or like at this point, all of this liquid that we are creating becomes kind of syrupy. We're basically wanting to create a sugary liquid is the easiest way to think of it. Right. So most distilleries or a lot of distilleries will kind of stop after that third water. Whereas what we do is, is add a full hottest water. So that kind of, if I remember correctly, kind of reaches about 80 degrees. So it's by no means, it's really in that kind of hot temperatures. And essentially what it's doing by adding that fourth water in is if you can imagine like a wet tea towel, we're kind of wringing all of that sugar that we possibly can. And it's really making sure that we get the best kind of starting point to making whiskey. Uh So that's Uh what that fourth water means. And that's why we are really proud of it and we do shout about it because we're, I would say, in a minority of distilleries who are actually doing it for doing that water washing four times rather than three. Yes, that's what I that's what I heard. Now, um, all right, so we got the yes. ten. So I know you have kind of in your core range, you have some mm-hmm. other numbers. So why don't you talk me through those? Sure. So we have a ten, uh, which is the original ten which we've spoken about. We also have the smoky 10, but we have the 12 and we have the smoky 12 as well. We can, would you like me to go through kind of the casks and all of those? So you say you have the smoky. Do you just add a little bit more of the peat to the process and that's what makes it smokier and you kind of take the originals of the 10 and the 12? So what we'll do is, I mean, Benriac is also quite unique because we're one of the only distilleries that create three different distillates. So we create an unpeated classic Speyside whiskey, which is extremely classic to find it. It's not often that smoky or peated whiskey is associated with Speyside. Um, right, usually Isla, Isla, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So we create an unpeated classic distillate. We also create a peated whiskey, which we do during smoke season, which is, again, similar to malting season, kind of that eight-week period. And then we also release a triple distilled whiskey as well. So the triple distilled now goes into kind of global travel retail. So you can't get it outside of airports, but it's worth picking up if you haven't tried it. <laughs> so what we do in the Smoky 10 and the Smoky 12, instead of using that classic unpeated whiskey, we will use the peated whiskey that we've created okay. during that smoke season. So obviously it takes on a completely different flavor profile. But what I really love about the peated whiskey that we create that I think is quite rare to find is that we're using a completely different style of peat from an Isla whiskey. So Isla whiskey is, I mean, I'm a big fan of Isla. (laughs) A lot of Isla whiskeys, you'll find that kind of maritime flavor and lots of different people will get lots of different flavors from that. Now, the reason that that is so different is because Peat is basically decomposing matter. What's very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it all depends where it comes from. That well, matter exactly. makes right. Yeah. What well, the decomposing matter on Isla is extremely maritime because it's an island, right? Right. right of course. When you move over into a, what we would term a highland peat, 
Highland peat is basically decomposing forest. So you'll find that it's slightly sweeter. It's more about heather and pine and moss and kind of tree bark and slightly, it's almost slightly more barbecue in its flavor. So you find a little bit of a kind of higher sweetness level to it, which works really, really well with the distillate that we create. So the smoky term will be kind of a majority. I think that Rachel does blend in a little bit of unpeated whiskey in there, but it is majority peated whiskey. And then we're again using different casks. So we can kind of create this huge wealth of flavor just by using these two different whiskeys that w- are available to us. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Now you said you create three distillates. Yes. So what is the third? So the third is triple distill. So, oh, right. so yes, of course you said that. You said that. Yes. <laughs> okay. So usually during our process, we will, and you'll find that most Scotch whiskeys will use copper pot stills which are kind of these amazing, magnificent things in the distillery. And are, they are. Like, our classic peated and our peated whiskey, we will run through those still, we will run our distillate through those stills twice. Now, when you add that extra distillation in to create a triple distilled whiskey, what you're doing through each of those times, you're basically refining the product. You're making it, more, you're making the flavors more concentrated and you're refining out anything that you might not necessarily want in there, any oils that you don't want in there, you can kind of, you can distill out basically. So for me, when you add that extra distillation, you get almost this boost of light oiliness to it. It Uh slightly changes the texture for me a little bit and it becomes less about those kind of like apples and pears and a bit more about lemon zest and orange zest. And it still retains that nice nuttiness, which I think is really important. And what what does that go into? How is that bottled? So that is bottled. It, they actually only release it in a liter bottle, which is really great. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, it's ex-bourbon casks that they use in that as well. And does that go into the 10 and the 12 and some of the older age statements or is no, it, it in it one kept, specific? Yeah, it's kept completely separately. Um, so uh-huh. kind of very similar to the way that we release malting season. That's all our floor malted barley goes into that addition. The triple distilled is kind of similar. They're kind of super similar in a way where that's the celebration of that process. And uh, now the other age statements, I'd love to hear how mm-hmm. you feel that they're different to the 10 and what the age, you know, brings out of them Yeah, you know, to, to make them different. So, yeah. So we, I mean, we have... Our core range, what I would say is our core and most readily available range is those two tens. So the original 10 and the smoky 10, the 12 and the smoky 12. We also release a 16, a 21, a 25 and a 30 year old. So to be able to try kind of a couple of those next to each other is really interesting. So what's, and what's quite interesting for me coming from an American whiskey background where I mean, in Kentucky, you're only going to get kind of seven, eight years and then that whiskey is ready. In Scotland, it's obviously significantly (laughs) colder, significantly wetter. So we are, we have this amazing ability to get these really long maturations without having too much interference from temperature. Um, I mean, the hotter something is, the faster it's going to mature in basic. Of course. Yeah. So 
for me, what I really like about what they do at Van Rijk is not only are they using three different casts in each bottling, so you can really get that huge range of flavor, but being able to see it slightly more mature in each different bottling, I think is just really invaluable. We kind of move away from, let's say as an example, in the original 10, it's all about apples and pears and there's almost um, like a pastry note in there for me as well sometimes. But then when you think about the 12, like the 10 versus 12 as as an example, you kind of move towards this like Black Forest Gato, like kind of darker berries. It becomes a little bit more sophisticated and you get a slight dryness as well, which I think is something that classically comes with aging in a whiskey cask. Right. But yeah, I think it's it's a, such a versatile distillery. And Rachel Barry, who is our master blender, one of the things that she often says is that she paints with flavor. So you can really see it between the difference of all of the different whiskies, all all coming up from under one roof. But the range is just incredible. Uh, since you brought her up, I did hear her speak, and she talked about this infamous Warehouse Thirteen. So tell me what, <laughs> I know it's, <laughs> she's like, I can play in Warehouse 13. So tell what happens in Warehouse 13. Warehouse 13 is a magical place. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. So we have quite a few warehouses on site at Memoria, but Warehouse 13 is really where we keep the most interesting casts and the most interesting distillates. So that, as an example, is where those really old casks that we were talking about earlier, they all reside in Warehouse 13. And Rachel has obviously the ability to go in and pick from all of these different casks to create whatever she sees in her mind as being the next the m- next amazing thing that comes from Ben Rienick. So it's an amazing place. I feel <laughs> I... I'm a huge avid reader and I feel very much when I go into a bookshop that I'm overwhelmed and want to stay in there all day. And I feel very much the same when I go into Warehouse 13. <laughs> I'm like searching out all of the interesting casts and seeing what's in there. So yeah, it's an amazing place. So are you allowed to reveal what some of the new things that or that might be on the horizon that you might be working on? I probably don't have that permission, but I I feel really proud of one of the latest releases, which is the 16-year-old. So Benrick, the 16, was, I think it got discontinued in 2016, if I remember correctly, kind of around that period of time. And it was a real fan classic, like a cult classic for the fans. Um, And it was discontinued. I think it was probably down to a lack of stock or you know, something similar along those lines. But it's been brought back. So it came out just before Christmas. And it's, as we kind of think about the effect of maturation, I think it's just an amazing representation of the distillery. So it's very, very similar to the original 10. So we use ex-bourbon casks, ex-sherry casks, and virgin oak casks. There is a tiny trace of peat in there, and it's still 43%. So I think it's just an incredible representation of time at the distillery because it is essentially a copy of the original pen, but with six years of age. And it's been received really, really well so far. 
and I'm excited to keep tasting it in trainings and tastings and events because I'm very excited when I get that drum in my hand. <laughs> yes, I, so I've had the 10 and I've had the older one. So I've had the 21 yes, and, uh, and the, 20, the 25 and 30. Right, and the 30. So I'm going to have to go back and try the 16, definitely. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So is there anything else that, that we should know about Benriac? I think for me, it's, for me, it's just such an amazing distillery. And for newcomers to the whiskey industry and for newcomers on their kind of single malts journey, I think it's such a perfect distillery to try because it has everything under one roof. You've got that peated whiskey. You've got the classic unpeated whiskey. You get to try a huge range of casks. Uh, you get to try something that's been floor malted, exclusively floor malted. And I think that, I mean, I love drinking it on its own. I love drinking it kind of over ice. It's delicious in an old fashioned. It's great in a highball. And I think for how versatile it is, it's sort of a little bit underrated, I suppose. <laughs> but I would, I would just encourage anyone to go out and try it, try and find it in, you know, one of your local independent bars or restaurants you know it's sold quite widely in specialist retail shops and in waitrose but yeah it's it's really incredible it's a great distillery well <laughs> oh that's a really great thing to say and we love we love to support distilleries that are great to work for yes. definitely <laughs> right we do love we love that now you kind of gave us some tips but I always ask for my top tips for the home bartender. <laughs> so is there anything special you could add to that other than in an old fashioned or, um, you know, over ice? Yeah. So I actually got asked a really good question the other day at one of my tastings because, I mean, there is this kind of thing in Scotch whiskey that people are often a little bit nervous of adding anything to their whiskey. And a gentleman at one of my tastings the other day said, how would you drink it if you want to try it cold, but you don't want to dilute it? And what I suggested to him was actually to freeze the glass or to put it in the fridge, especially when you're drinking whiskey and you don't want to dilute it and lose any of those flavors. Adding kind of a chilled glass is just a really great idea. And also one of my favorite things to do is if you don't want to kind of make a full old fashioned, but you want to try a whiskey in a slightly different way, kind of doing an, a, a, light, a light orange peel and just squeezing the oils over your whiskey so that you don't add any sugar, you don't have to add right. any bitters, just to add that extra element to it, especially if it's a whiskey that talks about orange flavors and kind of citrus notes. I think it's a really nice way to slightly change your whiskey if, you're, if you want something slightly different. Those are fabulous. Great. Thank you so much. Now, I always end with asking, if you could be anywhere drinking anything, where would that be? And what would you be drinking? So I am definitely kind of a classic highball fan. That is my go-to drink wherever I am. So just probably a Benriac tan and soda with a lemon zest over ice. And my favorite bar probably in the country at the moment is Scotch at the Balmoral in Edinburgh. It's an amazing whiskey bar. It's kind of, if you walk into Balmoral, it's just on the right-hand side. It's run by some of the nicest people and super knowledgeable about whiskey. 
and I would definitely be drinking a highball in in scotch. I love that. Well, th- thank you so much for being here. It's been great talking, Benria, and um, getting to know you and getting to know the brand a little better. And uh, that will be being opened in about two seconds after I leave you. Yes, I support you in that decision. <laughs> thank you very much. So um, we'll see you soon, I hope. Yes, hopefully. Thank you so much. Sure. I want to thank Charlotte for being on the program and also a huge thank you to Ben Rieck for sponsoring the transcription for the Hearing Impaired. For our Cocktail of the Week, we're making a Scottish twist on the Negroni. Our Cocktail of the Week is the Ben Rieck Boulevardier. The Negroni is a blend of gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. In this case, we take out that gin and replace it with Ben Rieck. Combine the following ingredients in a mixing glass. 20 mils of Ben Rieck the 12. 20 mils of Campari or any other bitter aperitif. 20 mils of sweet vermouth. And 10 mils of cherry syrup. Add ice and then stir, stir, stir. When it's cold and slightly diluted, strain it into a rocks glass over a cube or a block of ice. Then garnish with a cherry and an orange zest. You'll find this recipe, more whiskey cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find some of the ingredients in our shop. It's light when I wake up in the morning. How fab is that? If you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants and show them some loving. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. On the next show, we'll be chatting with two women who make things happen. Until that time, bottoms up.